is now good? Is now, this, now this works. Spot where I'm that, that, I think that's that good right good. there. Hey guys, <laughs> welcome to Overcrest. I'm so glad that you're here. Good to see you, Jake. I hope likewise. You had, hope you had a merry Christmas. I did. I hope, hope everyone else did as well. And we have an awesome interview to come back to after the holidays. Yes, here. this has been great. It's uh, it is Glenn Small. He wrote. Portia at Le Mans, 70 years. Yes, so this is the definitive illustrated history of Portia's 70 years of competition at the world's greatest motor race, Le Mans. And so Portia first entered Le Mans in 1951, which is exactly 70 years ago for 2021. They were represented at every single year. Of the race. They didn't miss a single race That's in incredible. 70 years. That's absolutely incredible. It's a fantastic book. I've got it right here in my hands. It's, uh, you know, I love books. Yes. Some, some books I buy and I'm like, well, I just want to have that book. That's a yeah. great book. Yeah. And then you put it on the shelf. You know, yeah. this is actually worth reading. It's, it is. So not only like hefty with like, it, there's a lot of content there. Well, it's, first of all, it's a high quality book and it's well researched. It goes year by year. So Every single it, year, it's in-depth, and when we talk to Glenn here, when we get into the interview, you'll learn just how deep he went into interviewing all of these race car drivers, the cars themselves, the it's people a, that made it possible. It's fantastic. It's a great book. If you're a Porsche enthusiast or just a motorsport enthusiast in general, you need this book. It, it is absolutely fantastic, and we wouldn't have him on if we didn't truly believe that. Um, right. But before we get to Glenn, what have you got for us? Petrol Box is an automotive subscription service for all the car girls and car guys in your life. So every single month, it's like Christmas morning. You get this box. Inside it is the latest and greatest in the industry. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully, you actually got a Petrol Box for a friend for Christmas. Because generally, what you do is if you have a friend, yes. you buy them something for Christmas and you get them a, <laughs> and you get them a nice gift. Uh-huh. Perhaps, perhaps like a Milwaukee three eighths ratchet that's okay. super cool and nice. And you, you give it to your never friend. Never mentioned that we're doing a. Gift exchange for Christmas. You have to mention it. I have to mention it. I don't know. There were years we didn't do anything. Hello, friend. That is my friend that is <laughs> sat here with me 350 plus times. Would you like a Christmas present? Because I'm thinking of getting you one. I, I, yeah. Okay. Well, now I know that you had <laughs> gotten already, me a I, Christmas I, present. I already have a petrol box. Though, Otherwise, so it would that. have been a great gift. So inside petrol box, you get, uh, you get publications that come in the mail. You t-shirts, get t-shirts, hats, hats tools. You always get some sort of supplies. tool. Every single month, there's some new detailing supply. I don't have to you ever I, buy I almost anything. always think when I open it, I'm like, that's neat. That's cool. Yes. I, it's always, it's, it's, the challenge of putting that together every month must be incredible. Yeah. You know, it's got to be really, it, really it tough. It is very cool. You can get it for as little as $19.95 a month for the Petrobox Basic. The Petrobox Premium gets you even more gear for $39.95 a month. Check them out at mypetrolbox.com and use the code OVERCREST at checkout to get six bucks off. All right. Let's get on with our talk with Glenn Small, the author of Porsche at Le Mans. Glenn, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate you and spending your time with us today. Yes, it's super. Thanks for the opportunity, Chris. Yeah, I had a chance to look at your... Yes, Jake is here (laughs) as well. Thank you. Yeah, yes. And uh, I've had a chance to look at your book, which is phenomenal. I love love the detail. I love the... It seems incredibly well-researched, and the photography is great, and a lot of archive stuff. And I want to get into the book a little bit, but I want to find out a little bit about who the guy is that can write something like this, because this is a very... Very unique book. I have a lot of Porsche books, and a lot of them really focus on photography because, you know, obviously, especially vintage motorsports photography. We've had Martin uh, Raffoff on the podcast, and I know that you know him. I looked. Oh uh, your- yeah, I know about yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's great. 
You know, he's great. He, some of his yeah. work is fantastic. And you can look at his work and you can put it on a page and it'll sell, right? I mean, you can you <laughs> yeah. can sell stuff sure. like that. But so I think yeah. a lot of books rely on photography as a crutch to sell books. And that's okay. Yep. Some people yep. like that and, and coffee table books are great. <laughs> but looking at a book like yours, which has really heavy, uh, heavy research, I'm kind of interested in the guy <laughs> That's going to spend all that time doing that because obviously this was a, a monumental task and a huge effort to put a book together like this. So I'm just trying to figure out where does Glenn come from? Where is a guy that is, is, is going to spend this much time <laughs> on a book? Where, where are you from? Where did you start, you know, uh, having interest in doing any kind of writing like this? Well, the whole journey basically started um, – uh, on day one, when I popped out, uh, I was interested <laughs> in motor cars. <laughs> when I when I first drew breath, that was when um, I became interested in motor cars. It's been with me as a little kid as I grew up. Uh, there were model cars all over the place, down the back of the sofa, in in our car, under the bed. Everything had to do with motor cars. And when I wrote an essay at school, my teacher knew who exactly wrote the essay because I'd give details of the car. When everybody else was saying a blue car or a black car, I was giving engine details and things <laughs> like that. So <laughs> I grew up loving it. I had a dad who who loved motorsport as well. He used to take me to the racetrack in East London. That's where I grew up, East London, South Africa, not, not East London, England. Uh, it's on the coast. And in actual fact, it's one of the one of the first major racetracks in South Africa. In the middle 30s, the auto union team uh, went out there and they raced in East London and they raced in Cape Town. Uh, so East London was a big, a big center, motorsport center back in as far back as the 30s. Why? That seems so far um, removed from manufacturing like Germany, England, America. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, uh, motorsport in South Africa really centered around, in the years that followed, centered around uh, Formula One and the guys who came out from the Northern Hemisphere. Now, they would come out to South Africa in what was our summer. That was their winter. So they would um, down tools in, in England and in Europe because it's too cold to race. And they'd come out to South Africa for what they called uh, the, the Springbok Tour, or they called it the Sunshine Tour. And they would, this is Jim Clark, Graham Hill, Denny Hume, um, Phil Hill, uh, all of these guys, Joe Bonnier from, and, and some of the German drivers uh, would come out and race in South Africa. They'd race in, in Johannesburg, which is Kailami in those days. They'd race East London, which was where the, the South African Grand Prix started. And they'd race in Cape Town, the, the three main uh, race circuits in South Africa in the 60s. So they came out and, uh, I mean, this, this is something that the, the, the South African population looked forward to, to seeing at the end of the year, come December time. And um, so I would go out to the racetrack at East London with my dad and we would, we'd watch the races. Of course, there'd be other races that would happen on Grand Prix Day. And I remember seeing David Piper. He drove a, I think it was a Ferrari 330p4 that went up in flames and um, it it went up in flames just before the start of the main the main straight past the pits. That's so the, the, that car is the most tender. beautiful race car ever made, in my opinion. 
Exactly, exactly. This this car was on fire from the pits to the car was about 100 yards, but the fire engine had to follow the entire route around the racetrack oh. to get to the to, to Piper, and his car was uh, a, a molten uh, lump of, of fiberglass and, and aluminium, uh, you know, just burning away. That was the end of it. So I remember seeing that. So I was, um, I don't know, six, seven, eight years old at that time. And, uh, you know, that stayed with me. I've asked him about that uh, incident since then. He just about cries. Uh, you, can, you can understand. Hmm. Do you think that, that so, at that age, were you able to understand the gravity of what was happening as that car was burning to the ground, whether there was a man in there or not, or the danger of motorsport? Were you able to understand no, that at the time? No, not fully. Um, you know, my, my interest, uh, my de- more detailed interest, if you want, uh, grew from from maybe that time onwards. You know, when I was 10, 11, 12, I started to really know about what, what cars were. But, you know, it, it's funny. I've never really been a Formula One fan. It's always been sports cars and endurance racing. And as a kid, the only real coverage we got of the Lamar 24 Hours was when you got the Autosport magazine or the Motorsport magazine um, every week that came out in our local news agents. And I would go down there and I'd read it. I wouldn't be able to buy all the copies. But that was the only race that I was interested in. Uh, and funnily enough, the, the day after the weekend of a Lamar race, you'd find maybe an inch in the local newspaper who won it. And and that was it. And I'd have to wait until my mom could take me into the town to go and have a look in these magazines. And despite that limited exposure to to uh, coverage of the race, uh, my interest in endurance racing and sports cars has always overshadowed any other form of racing. Was it was were your mates also into this stuff, or was this something you were solely? interested in alone no no it was me uh my mates were you know we lived on the coast so it it was it's quite warm there so the beach was a big draw and of course i spent a lot of time well there's more um, women at the beach than there are at the racetrack that's for sure (laughs) Uh, well and they've, they've got less on too but um (laughs) <laughs> the, yeah, the, the beach, of course, had its attractions, and I spent hours and hours down there. But, uh, you know, as, as, a, as a young kid growing up, my teenage years were taken up with golf as a sport. Uh, this was a big draw for me, uh, also because we lived right next to the golf course. But motoring and motorsport has always been a very, very strong part of my life. So, um, yeah, but, you know, the, the, the other thing is that South Africa, being as far away from the main manufacturing centers as you can get, really, um, it had a lot of manufacturing assembly plants. We didn't manufacture cars. We assembled. They used to send out what they call CKD kits, completely knocked down uh, kits that they would assemble in in South Africa. So they had big assembly plants. and um, is that what uh, I would consider the, like the, the, the city golf? Yeah. The, like, cause I think of, uh, you know, the Mark one yes. GTI quit that was done in 83, 84, right? They didn't make any more of those, That's right. uh, but in South Africa, you have the city golf, which yep. was made until That's well right. into the two thousands. That's right. And we had one. <laughs> <laughs> they, they were amazing. People absolutely loved them. 
because they were no frills. It was a 1300cc engine and uh, it was just plain and simple and reliable and it was a, uh, a shape that people loved. Well, it's the same thing up? with the VW Beetle. Did they race the city golf the down Beetle. there? Were there any city golf series? Uh, there were, yeah, there that's were, what talking um, about. but there were, there were also, I mean, basically VW series, um, uh, it, it was a whole class, the VW golf, it sometimes included the, the later models as well. But I mean, you look at the, at the VW Beetle, I mean, this, this is a shape that goes back to the thirties yep. and yet it was loved right up until it still is. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, they just quit making the so, thing a few yeah. years ago in, in, in Mexico. Mexico that's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, one of the problems we've had in uh, we had in South Africa in the time that I was growing up is imported cars. And we're talking Ferrari, Maserati, Lamborghini, Porsche, um, any of the exotic Aston Martins, any of these exotic cars. If you imported them from Europe uh, to South Africa, you, you paid 100, 110% import duty. Come on. <laughs> so, yeah. So what what happened was uh, Leyland, British Leyland, had a big, big assembly plant um, down in the Cape. And because they, uh, they manufactured some parts like uh, alloy wheel rims and leather kits for seats and things like this, which they in turn exported to Europe to be made, you know, in, in, into uh, built into cars, they built up what they call export credits. So you could then buy a Jaguar E-Type, which was, let's call it exotic, but you could buy it for basically the list price at the exchange rate. Hmm. This wasn't regarded as an import because it came through Br British Leyland. So what was so the, who were they protecting MGs, by doing this? They, they just wanted you to, to buy local. And what was local? What what kind of cars are we talking about here? We you're talking about um, uh, Triumph, Austin Healey, MGs. If that's the market you were in, or else you you know assembly plants they were huge in South Africa. VW still have a massive assembly plant. General Motors, uh, when they sold out, uh, it was taken over by what was called Delta Motors. Now, Delta Motors was a continuation of General Motors, and they made all the Vauxhalls out there. Um, you have um, Alfa Romeo, you had Peugeot, you had um, uh, Nissan, Toyota with huge assembly plants. So the kits would come out from the main assembly manufacturer, or the, the main manufacturers in Japan, Europe, the uh, the UK or wherever, and they would arrive as as kits and they would be assembled on proper assembly lines, but they weren't manufactured there. Gotcha. So we had all sorts of yeah, we had all sorts of nice cars, but anything exotic, small, limited run cars, of which Porsche was one, uh, attracted 110 percent import duty, and so you saw very few of them. Yeah, that's almost like if you were and really you into cars, that's Ferrari. a reason to, to just leave because you could almost, <laughs> for the cost of a Ferrari, you might as well just almost put a down payment on a house just by moving to England. <laughs> yeah, no, this is true. But, I mean, that's why you only saw one every now and again. You, you really didn't see too many of those cars. Um, but that changed all a bit later on. I mean, when, when the market really demanded that it change, it did change. So you obviously have so, an affinity um, for Porsche, and I'm curious, you I know, didn't. 
Oh, you I did not. That's what I was going to ask. You know, no, were you enthralled no. because they were so rare at the time in South Africa, or did that come later? Oh, you you saw so few of them that you couldn't really build up a, a love for them because you never saw them. But where we lived, across the road from us, uh, the people sold their house, and the new people who moved in was a doctor and his wife, and he had a 9-11 T. This would have been in about 65-ish. Uh, no, later, would have been late, later 60, 68, 69. And I would go and sit at our gate and I would look across the road into their driveway so I could see his car. That's crazy. I have, well, a, I have a 1970 <laughs> 911T. So. And no one is, no one is standing uh, at the gorgeous. end of your road looking at it, I oh, suppose. Oh, sure they are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that was a rarity. It was really. So where my love for Porsche came was in 99, we moved across to the UK, my wife uh, and, and our two children, myself. And um, of course, there's Porsches all over the place here. And I, my eyes were on stalks. Um, and uh, we moved in 99, and I, I wrote my first Porsche book. Uh, it started in 2004. So five years after arriving in the UK was when I first started on, when I started on my first book. Well, how how did you end up in the thing. UK? What was the, why did you do that? Why did uh, you leave home? Uh, we moved, yeah, because um, my folks both died in South Africa many, many years ago, um, and they were long gone by the time we decided to move. My wife is German. Her folks and her whole family were in Germany. I've got one sister and her, and her husband, and they, they were here in the UK. We had no immediate family left in South Africa, so we decided if our kids wanted to have any grandparents, because mine had gone, uh, that we'd best be closer to them. And also the political situation in the 90s was was not nice. Um, and it's such a pity. The country's gone downhill a lot. And uh, yeah, I don't want to get into the political side of it. But yes. uh, it's. I, I always used to say that the country I left is not the country I grew up in. So it was uh, just a change of pace for you too. What were some of the improvements that happened in your life when you went to, to England? Did everything kind of change around for you? Well, yeah, absolutely. Uh, in South Africa, in the middle 90s, I started uh, a classic car magazine with a business partner, and we ran that for a few years. So I, I, I've been writing for all the magazines in South Africa already from the early 90s. So I was, you know, I was already, a, if you want, an established journalist. Um, so when I moved to the UK, uh, sorry, let me take a step back. In the middle 90s, I had the idea for a Porsche book. And I was sitting in my office one day and I, I said to myself, this is, this is a book. I just had the title in my head and I said, that's a book. And I stuck it into my ideas file. We were probably all got one on our computer somewhere. Uh, I, I had a little ideas file and I stuck it in there and I forgot all about it. When I was in England, I approached Haynes Publishing and um, I said, I've got a few book ideas. I'd like to talk to them, talk to you about them. And they said, that's fine. Come and visit us. So I went down to go and see them. And I uh, went through a few of the ideas. And the guy, the editorial director, sat across the desk. And he said, mm, yeah, maybe, maybe not. Uh, the next one, maybe. Uh, no, not that one. And then I mentioned this one, the, the Carrera Dynasty. And he said, that's it. He said, that's what I want. 
And he knew nothing else other than the title, but he imagined what the contents would be from the title. And he said, uh, draw me up a synopsis, send it through to me, I'll get it approved, you'll have a contract in a month. And that was 2004. So I started researching that that book in late 04, beginning of 05. And since then, between 2005, say, and, and today, 21, that's 16 years, I've written 17 books. I would not have written one of those books had I still been in South Africa. That's the difference. Is it the you market so or much is it the, 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 just the corporate structures or what's, what accounts for that? It's, it's the industry and its geography. If I had phoned up the the editorial guy from South Africa here in England, and I'd phoned him from my home in Johannesburg and said, oh, by the way, I've got a, um, a book idea. He'd say, well, who are you? Uh, you know, what have you done? And instead of that, I was able to sit across, across his desk and push across his desk a few of the magazine articles I'd written, uh, some of the stuff I'd done, where I'd been, the races I'd gone to, etc. And he could actually see me personally, and we we could we started a relationship like that. So he it it just gives you so much more credibility when you are here in person. One and two, you're also closer to where you can do your research. <clears throat> so you're closer to the guys like Derek Bell and 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 um, you know Vic Elford, Brian Redman, all these guys who you can you can interview. Brian Redman, I've I've talked to him many times in person. That guy tells the oh, best stories. Oh, he's a fantastic story. guy. I, you know, he's he said he would come on the podcast. I really got to follow through on that because that guy is the storytelling he's able to do and the way he tells yeah. some of the things that have happened to him is is incredible. And his book yeah, is yeah. really good. Yeah, no, uh, it's fantastic, and I've interviewed him so many times. Uh, and I've spoken to him at, at race meetings and it, it's, you know, I email him and it's first name terms and that that's the type of guy he is. There are no airs and graces. You know, you get down to the nitty gritty and he doesn't mind telling you where he cocked up. Mm-hmm. You, you know, he's the, these guys don't have, um, <clears throat> in their minds, they don't have these reputations to preserve like, um, yeah, well, I don't want to make any comparisons, but <laughs> those older guys, <laughs> they, they just really are down to earth people. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it takes, well, they're not politicians. Let's just say that, you know, they're, it, it's, it's, <laughs> yeah. a, it's a different type of legacy, I guess I should say. Yeah. I've got a, yeah. I've got a voicemail yes, on my phone it. from Brian Redman and he always just like, yes. I have, we're not friends by any means. <laughs> it's like a totally professional <laughs> relationship, but he always, he always calls yeah. me Chris and he's always like, you always feel like you're his buddy, you know, even though there's no, that's right. It, it, it's really, really interesting. So this book, Porsche at Lamar. Um, yes. Tell me <clears throat> where did this book come from? Why, why did you write this book? Well, um, again, living in South Africa, I was, uh, deprived if you want of, of, uh, Lamar coverage. So when we arrived in the UK, uh, as I said in 99, I said to my wife, I have to go to Lamar uh, because this has been my all-time most favorite race. So uh, it didn't happen for quite a number of years. In 2007, it was my first uh, visit to Lamar. Um, it was overwhelming. You know, I'd gone to Brands Hatch and Silverstone and all the, the tracks in, in, in England and in South Africa. Nothing comes close to the atmosphere 
the charisma of the circuit even the, and the whole spectacle it's awesome so anyway i i had uh, i'd done quite a few lamas already and um I don't know if I, I think I proposed the idea to Haynes and I said to them in, it must have been in about uh, the beginning of 2010, thereabouts, uh, what about me doing the anniversary of, the 60th anniversary of Porsche's race, first race at Lamar? And we do 60 years in a book of Porsche at Lamar. And they loved the idea straight off the bat. And so, um, I mean, it falls logical, logically into doing it year by year, but grouping it into decades because that's the, the easiest way of doing it. And conveniently with Porsche, uh, if you look at the decades, they've almost, they, they almost uh, write themselves because this, the 60s was the, the decade of the plastic Porsches from 904 to 917. Um, the 70s was the, the, the 917, and of course, and it went further on, and that was the turbo era. Then came the 80s, which was 956, 962 from beginning to end. The 90s was, again, a different decade. So it, they fall into convenient decades, and it's easy to, to, to group everything like that. So, and that's um, a, is that, that's kind just, of a product of um, the relationship of that Porsche had with with regulation, right? I mean, they kind of, by doing what they did many times, changed the regulations because they were just so good. <laughs> it, it almost. No, was, I wouldn't. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't put it quite like that. I would say that uh, Porsche have always had a reputation for understanding and interpreting the regulations. Let's say to their advantage. Sure. So the FIA or uh, the ACO who run Lamar, um, they would not pander to anyone. Uh, Ferrari was notorious for saying, I'm pulling all my cars out of Lamar because you've changed the, the fuel tank size. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, Porsche have done the same thing. And so, um, so have other manufacturers. They've all thrown their toys out the cot at different times. And Lamar have said, that's okay. We'll, we'll we'll see you back here in a few years, <laughs> and that's the way it's always worked. Uh, so Lamar is um, no one manufacturer is bigger than than Lamar is. It it will determine who's going to survive it and who's going to win and who's going to have the best car. Do you think that's the one of the reasons why the longevity of the race has been so? I mean, not many other races, if any have still existed over such a long period of time. Yeah, that, that is, that certainly plays into it. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it's a difficult one without getting too political as well, because the ACO, um, are law unto themselves and they, you can argue they have the right to be, um, because the race is, it is such a spectacle that, um, they they need they put forward the best the best set of of sets of rules year by year or or sort of um, they they do it now for several years in a row. Um, I think it's just a case of yeah, the uh, Lamar is bigger than than any manufacturer. Um, you know they they've come with the best machines and they they blow up on the first lap, but the race goes on hmm. after year. Yeah, I think that's that's incredible. Um, 
It's interesting to think of think of it in terms of somebody being bigger than Audi or bigger yeah. than Porsche, who has dominated so yeah. much. And it's, it's knowing that that at the end, there's guys in a in a dark room with I, I imagine guys in suits in a dark room with you know with uh, yeah. Enzo Ferrari style glasses on, going, "Nope, this is this is <laughs> this is just the way it's going to be." Sorry, sorry, Hans. I don't care. Yeah. That's yeah, power. I think, that's I true think power. That's largely the way. Yeah, I think that's the way it happens. Um, and uh, yeah, you 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 might be um, um, pushing it a little bit, but uh, I think that that is what happens. Hyperbole is always um, the, the cream of entertainment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when I look at yeah. so when I look at your book, um, the, the information that's in there, you you did describe it well. Yeah. I mean, you go year by year and decade by decade. I mean, like I yeah. said, it is it is crazy how much information has gone into this book. And how much research is in this book? How did you? How do you go about gathering information? Because it's, I, I would, I, I shudder to think what your desk looks like, because <laughs> it's got to be just full of papers and books and. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that that bit is true, <laughs> um, and especially when you're working on a book or on a project like that, you've got reference books all over the place, and on top of the printer and the scanner and the spare chairs, you've got books, and it, it is like that. Um, I like to think that I'm a little bit organised, but there's a there are points where at at which you are disorganised and. Uh, disorganized is maybe the wrong word. It's just that you've got so much that you're trying to remember because when you're writing something like that over a 60-year period um, or covering a 60-year period, you've got to keep a lot of information in your head because this is one of the, the common problems or challenges that I have when writing a book. You come across a a fact, an interesting fact. You think, oh, I needed that yesterday when I was working on that chapter. Now, where do I put that bit of information while I'm looking for what I really want now? Yeah. And so you have to either write it down or put a sticky note in, uh, on a particular page in a book or, uh, you know, bookmark a, a website or something like that. And you've got to remember to go back to it. So that's always a bit of a challenge. But I always say to people, Rather than doing all of these mind games to keep your, your brain active as you get older, uh, drop all of that lot, write a book. <laughs> yeah, for because sure. Because your, your, brain, your brain will be so exercised by, <laughs> by remembering stuff and where did I get that or where do I get that and where did I put that bit of info and you've got to remember all of the stuff. And I, I find that enjoyable. I struggle um, the most with – okay, go, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, no, that 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 is a, a big, big challenge uh, in writing any uh, book project. Yeah, no, sorry, that's what I wanted to say there. Yeah, it's just my biggest struggle, and and I'm a writer too. I've written for you know a bunch of different yeah. Porsche magazines and Triple Zero and stuff like that. And my biggest struggle yeah. when I write something is if I don't experience it myself, I have trouble. Uh -huh explaining what the experience was like and getting other people to be excited about experiences that I did not experience. And when I think when you're writing a book like this, which is the history of such an incredible event, you have to do that. Yeah. And that's something that I would, I'm, I'm, I still struggle with. And I, and it's, it's, I've actually turned away work. You know, someone's like, Hey, do you don't want to, you want to write about this car? This car is very, very significant, blah, blah, blah. It was at this racetrack. It was the first one to do this. And I just go, yeah, yeah that's great. I would love to read about that. But yeah. <laughs> how do I, how do you get excited about writing about stuff like that? 
Yeah, that that to, to me, I, I don't have a problem with that at all because I'm drawn in by the race. Um, also, you know, I go back to my early childhood days or good childhood when I was maybe a teenager. I, I, I had guys who I admired, heroes who I looked up to, and they were the Derek Bells, the uh, John Fitzpatricks, the David Hobbs, uh, the Vic Elfords. These guys who, when I read about them in motorsport and autosport magazines and and other road and track, I looked at I looked to these guys and I thought, wow, if only I could talk with some of these guys, they must have such fantastic stories. I've interviewed a lot of them now, and not once, loads of times, to the to the point where I I send. Christmas emails to Derek Bell and and uh, Vic Elford and Fitzpatrick and all of these and Redman and so forth, because and they send me back one first names. Uh, I wonder if it has to do to with your proximity been, to the races and growing up with that. Like I'm this, I'm this young, some, so I'm 40. So when I grew up, these guys were done racing. So I didn't get to experience yeah, or yeah. see. So I wonder if that had like I have trouble connecting the. The, the like I didn't have the aspiration of meeting those people. To me, they're already heroes. You know, they didn't grow into yeah, a legacy yeah, yeah. or grow a legacy over time. They were already heroic people. You know, already. So they're you know to me they're intimidating. I wasn't there. Yeah. Blah blah blah. <clears throat> yeah. No. I I think that is that is something. Uh, maybe being a, a bit older, um, I, I recall when you know, such and such a car uh, blew up at Lamar or whatever. I can remember things like that. Um, but I just think as a, as a journalist, as a writer, uh, when you learn about something, and it can be on the internet, I'm not ashamed to say that I look at the internet for, for uh, facts and figures, but I don't rely on them. Mm-hmm. I use them and I say, oh, that's interesting. I'll go off and research that. Okay. Oh, did that happen? I'll go and read up about that. And that, then I, I will find out, oh, so-and-so had an accident on the third lap uh, in, in the 1972 Lamar. I, I'm going to phone him and ask him. And that's how I get to get the first-hand stories from the guys. And they tell me uh, with their own passion and excitement, which I then try to replicate in my writing. Um, I've got interviews that I've done with some of the guys that I've I mentioned already today. Um, interviews that when they were telling me they were hurting. And I've got those interviews that I've not used yet. I will. But the passion and the emotion that's in the interview, in the description of what happened, is so vivid that I'm able to to look at that and say, I, I need to bring this in. Right. So, yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe it's just uh, something that uh, you 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 look for. You look for it, and you you bring it out. I hope, anyway. Yeah, well, I mean that's that's what makes <laughs> you know makes you talented yeah. at what you do, and makes your it makes your your book so good. And you know, you had access to the Porsche archives, which used to be easier. Yep. <laughs> used to be easier to have <laughs> yeah. access to that. Now, yeah. extremely difficult. Yeah. You know, I've got um, yes. I'm, I've got correspondence with the archives for some of the stuff that I've done, but it's getting harder and harder. I don't know if that's because people are just all over them, but you can't just go there anymore. And you, you, you get your email back, maybe yeah. <laughs> your phone call back. No. So how did you work out getting access to the archives? Did you actually go there? I do. Yes. 
Yeah, because uh, what what I've done a number of times uh, is um, I will arrange with the archives that I want to do a photo shoot of five or six motor cars. Now, they will either be in the museum or they will be in what they call the uh, secret bunker, which is a warehouse uh, a little way away from Porsche. The secret bunker, and, all right. <laughs> The the secret bunker. So uh, you'll say, okay, I'm going to do these six cars. Three of them are at the museum, and I can do them in these and these these location, and the other ones I'll do at this other uh, location at the warehouse. So um, I will go across and I will, by arrangement, do all my photography on the days I'll go there for a week, and I will spend two or three days photographing, and the rest of the time is in the archive pulling out the information relating to the cars that I've just photographed. And because I've been going there since 2004 was my first uh, visit to the archive, uh, I know the guys personally. I've gone through, now this is the third manager of, of the archive who I've, I've uh, over the time that I've been going there, who I've got to know. Um, but it's just uh, uh, relationships that you've established over time. And, I probably contact the archive on average every week for something. Right. And so they've got to know me. Describe what the, what the archive is. Like, what am I seeing when I go there? Is it, is it like where you walk in and you flip a switch and it's like, dung, 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 <laughs> and all these fluorescent lights turn on and they, they go off into the distance and there's just file cabinets all over the place. What is this place like? Uh, well, the, 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 the first archive that I knew was in a building across the road. It was really like an old school. You you went in a uh, upper set of stairs around the back of a of a uh, I don't know workshop or something, and uh, there was this big open space and just uh, some desks and, and and shelves and filing cabinets and what have you. And then they they kept all the records in a, a fireproof facility just off the side of that. That was and then. Many of the cups that they'd won were placed on the rafters so that, you you know, they were like 10, 15 feet above your head. And you, you'd quite easily not see them at all. But if you looked up, you'd find, you know, the, the uh, Targa Floria trophy sitting on top of a raft of 10, 15 feet above your head. Um, well, when, when and you win so, so many then, of them, you kind of run out of places to put that kind of stuff. So it just <laughs> yeah, you around. do. No, you, but no, <laughs> the point I'm trying to make is they didn't have cabinets nice glass cabinets where they, you know, would put all the stuff on display. Right. <clears throat> they had, they had a little museum where they actually had maybe 15 cars or 20 cars on display packed like sardines, one next to the other. You walk down one row, there were one or two at the end and you walk down the other row at the other end. And then you got to the end of that. And then there was a glass counter where you could buy uh, a, a coffee cup and a t-shirt. And that was about it. Well, that's changed, okay. right? I mean, that's changed. I'm, I'm sort of, I'm playing playing it down a little bit, but that's essentially what what was on offer. Now, in oh nine, oh eight, oh nine, somewhere around there, they then started to build this big new um, uh, spaceship that they've got there on 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 legs, and it's fantastic. You walk in ground floor, and you immediately off to your left, you've got the counters where you. Uh, go and get your, um, you have to, I think you have to, you know, you've got to pay. Uh, you don't have to arrange it. I think you just go in and you get these uh, earphones that whatever language you speak, they've got earphones for you with um, 
press buttons that you push next to each motor car, and it gives you the history of that car uh, in Japanese or German or English. I think or French, I'd rather just walk around there with one. you. I think that's <laughs> uh, that would be. <laughs> I, so when I think of the, you've, you've basically compared two different Porsche. Right, two different companies yep. is what you've yep. done. So you've hmm. separated out the 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 '90s and everything, the '80s and the '90s, and you kind of said you went there in 2004, which was, I mean, that was a huge paradigm shift for Porsche. What they were doing for marketing, what they were doing, that was like right in the yeah. that was the shit right there. The 2000, the early 2000s was everything kind of yep. changed for yep. Porsche, and I almost think that there's. I like the previous mentality better where the trophies are up there get collecting dust on a shelf and you can get a fucking coffee yeah. cup. It's less like, commercialized. Yeah, I feel like now yeah, now yeah. I go on I go on Instagram and there's a guy with a a maroon sweater and a Porsche design watch standing next to a yeah, a, a, yeah. A, a Targa that matches his sweater and then he's got like a thousand dollar briefcase shoved up in the up in the, behind the rear glass. That was not. I mean, that's what kept Porsche alive. Don't get me wrong. I'm glad it happened, yes, and I'm glad yes, the yes. shift is is there. But I but the romanticism of being like, ah, well, we already won this trophy. Fucking chuck it up in the rafters. That company <laughs> yeah. and that mentality. I love yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. I love that. That's completely different than how things are today. Okay, here's a story for you. When I went in 2005, I think it was my second my second trip. I needed to interview uh, Herbert Linger, and um, he was to me Who's one of Herbert? the most incredible. That? Herbert Linger it was one of the, he, and in fact, I think he was the first mechanic to be employed by Porsche in Stuttgart because remember okay. they'd moved back from Austria. Yep. So he was one of the, the first in '48. He was one of the first mechanics to be employed in Stuttgart. He became their test driver, and he became a works driver. And over decades, he became an ambassador. He's still there today, and he is as energetic and as enthusiastic as he was in almost in his 20s. He's an incredible person. So I was there in 2005, and I was. this was now the old archive, and I said to the archive manager – I'm staying over a weekend. What is there to do in Stuttgart on the weekend? Oh, he said, here's a ticket for you. There's the uh, Stuttgart um, classic car show in the middle of the town. So off I go. And I said, oh, I want to interview Herbert Linger. He said he will be there. So we arranged a certain time. I got to Herbert Linger. I was talking to him about his time when he was uh, stationed in America looking after the cars of um, wealthy gentleman drivers doing the Panamericana, the Carrera Panamericana. So he has got knowledge going back to the 48 when when you fixed a Porsche with a hammer and, and a wire coat hanger. <laughs> and so I was talking to him and he gave me stories like I can't believe. And then uh, because he only had a half an hour, I had half an hour with him on a Saturday and half an hour with him on a Sunday. The Not second day I went in and we were <laughs> no, no, not at all. I've interviewed him loads since then, but this was my intro to him. And on the second day, I said to him, you know, what was it like when when you were working? Was Ferry Porsche ever with you in the workshop? How did it happen? You know, things like this. He said, you know, we'd come back from a race on a Sunday night. We'd get back into the workshop. We'd offload the car. We'd take the engine out. Now, these they've raced all weekend. 
Now they bring the car back in the workshop. They're taking the engine out. We're talking midnight. They're taking the engine out, and it's on the workbench, and there's three or four of, or five of them around the engine, and they're saying, this was good, and that, that broke, and this we need to fix. And he said, and now tears begin to run down his cheek, Herbert Linger. And he, he says to me, now Mr. Ferry Porsche comes into the workshop with a brown paper bag full of sandwiches and with cool drinks. He puts it down on the workbench and he says, now guys, how are you doing? Would you find the CEO of, a, of, of any manufacturing company walking into the workshop on a Sunday night at midnight with sandwiches for the guys who are working? No, because no. Obviously, no. The, the answer is the answer is no. Because I think that the the way that the the corporate and CEO world works now is CEOs yeah. are just brought in from other companies. You don't really have anything to do with a passion for the car. Yeah, you're just yeah. a, you're just a suit that's really good with a pen and and phone yep. calls and this other thing. You get deals done. Yeah. It, it is not a a passion driven. <clears throat> I hate to say it, but it's not a passion-driven industry like it was. There was a lot of consternation no, about about the the family that was running Porsche. I mean, there was if you think about the the period of time where the 914 came around and all that stuff, the Volkswagen yeah. and Porsche, and that they were angry that it was this family-driven thing, and it was so there was issues uh-huh. surrounding the fact that there was, it was still a family-run company that causes problems. It really sure. does. But I mean, obviously, sure. nobody. At the top of of Chrysler is is going into into the break room with sandwiches. I don't I don't I just don't think that's happening. I think no, I think they're out of touch. No, I don't think they. It, there's so much money and and I mean these guys are making hundreds of millions of dollars a year and they've got stock options and jets sure. and 65 Rolex Daytonas yeah. with custom colors. You know it's yes. <laughs> they're just so out of touch. But this is this is the, the 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 two different Porsches that you were drawing uh, attention to earlier. You've got the one that was earlier driven by passion, and you've got the one today which is driven by bean counters. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and well, suits, we all know, you know that are good they drive. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> but you know, um, uh, there was a, there was another point you you asked me earlier about um, uh, the different eras of of motorsport. Um, in the early days with Herbert Linger, and I mean, he, he is a very, very well-known uh, uh, Porsche personality. Through the years, you, you had other guys who were employed by the company in different positions. Herbert Linger was one of them. Another one was Jürgen Bath. And uh, there were others. Uh, um, uh, 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 I just can't think of names at the moment. Um, but several of the guys who were works drivers would drive on a weekend, come into work on a Monday in the workshop, go and speak to the, the, the racing manager and say, this is how we can improve the car. So you had guys working on the cars who drove them. And this to me was unique. I don't think Ferrari ever had that. They had paid drivers who would, uh, would race on a weekend. And on Monday, they wouldn't be in the workshop telling the guys how to fix the engine or how to improve the compression. Oh, they're chasing but tail on a Vespa. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But the point, the point is that these were guys who knew the car inside out, and they knew that the back suspension link was weak, or there was a problem with the exhaust because it was rattling, or they would be able to say, "This we need to fix the flange on this 
component. And so they had really, really inside knowledge of. We lost you. Are you still there? Shoot. The, the solutions to the workbench. We lost you there for a second, but that's all right. That's okay. Um, yeah. Was there, so as you're looking at your book and you look at the, the, yeah, the yep. thread, right? You can pull a string starting in the sixties. You can pull that string all the way till now, the whole, the whole story. Yeah. Was there one yep. thing that could, that, that came up over and over again? And you may have just alluded to it, honestly, that accounts for the continued success for Porsche in endurance racing. What if, if there was one thing you could pick? Um, I think it is the reliability of their engine, their, their flat six engine. If you look at where the, okay, the concept started with four cylinders and, and, and grew into six and then obviously eight and 12. Um, but the six cylinder engine is the bedrock of their, their production car company. And they were able to develop that to such an extent that it was so, so successful uh, on the racetrack as well. And I think they were able to build reliability into their racing engines because of that. Where did that reliability come from? Was it was it uh, just sweat engineering? Because Ferraris and and some of the other companies just weren't as reliable. Is there what was the reason for it? Mm. What was the driving force behind that reliability? Um, <clears throat> a dedication by their staff early on that that was built in. It was it was almost like a given. If you kind of weren't prepared to work weekends, well then you know don't bother working for us. Uh, it wasn't it wasn't a condition it was just like you know you you want to work weekends because you really love the cars and you really want them to win but the reliability i think was built in because they they built so many units of the engine plus their testing regime was was very very strict and uh it 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 just built in longevity into their engines i mean i know it's not the six cylinder engine but um uh, was it the the 917, that they drove a 1,000 miles over their tank test track at Weissach. Mm -hmm. Okay. This was to prove suspension, um, gearbox, um, uh, joints, uh, you know, uh, uh, um, where where, uh, components are fastened onto the engine, be it starter motor, alternator, whatever it was, stuff that would last, and their cars would last the distance, more than other cars, of course, things can break, but they would last the distance more than with other manufacturers because they went through this testing regime to such an extent. And I think that that, that mentality did bleed into other manufacturers over time. You know, you started seeing endurance time, testing yeah. and stuff like that. And everybody was like, oh, well, maybe somebody with binoculars was trying to figure out what Porsche was doing and finally discovered <laughs> it, you know, along yeah. the way. Glenn, it's been really, really awesome having you on the podcast. Where can people buy this book if they wanted to buy this book? Where is it available? Where can they find it? Well, it's it's on Amazon, but obviously you can buy it um, uh, through any good bookstore. Uh, I'm, I'm sure. I mean, I, I don't live in the States, but I'm sure that um, uh, Waterstones and Barnes & Noble, all these, these good uh, stores will have it. But it's available on Amazon, and it's also available, I think, from the um, – uh, the Motorbooks, uh, the Quarto, Quarto Knowledge and Motorbooks website. Yeah, it's it's a fantastic so, book. Uh, I really encourage everybody to take a look. It's beautiful. It's well-researched. Um, if you love Porsche, if you even if you don't love Porsche and you just love motorsport, 
I think there's a lot of great stories yeah, in there yeah. that everybody should read about yeah. and hear. And I, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. We're going to put the link to the book right to Amazon in our show notes. So everybody can take a look. And of course, we'll post it on social yep. media as well. That's great. Glenn, thank you. Take care of yourself All over right. there. Yeah, man. Thank you very much. And uh, thanks for the time. And uh, if there's anything you need from me, uh, you know, you just give me a shout. Yeah, I think that's going to happen. It sounds like you've, uh, <laughs> you know a lot of people that I would really love to talk to and really love to interview. So we'll, we'll definitely be taking you up on that. Yeah. Good. Okay, no problem. Take care of yourself. Thanks, Glenn. All right, Chris, Jake. Thanks Thanks for your time, eh? Yes, sir. Bye-bye. Oh, all Bye. right. Bye-bye now. Bye. Man, that's cool. <laughs> yeah. It's a great book. Yeah. It's a great book. I know you haven't had a chance to look at it as much as I have, but uh, it's it's incredible. The, and- you can even tell just flipping through it, though, the detail and depth of knowledge that he goes into. Yeah. It is just fascinating. Yeah, it's good words and good photography, which is which is tough to put two and two together. All right, what else have you got for us before we talk a little bit more? Yeah, let's take a minute to talk about our sponsor, Oberk Car Care. Oberk is your source for detailing compounds and supplies. They have a whole line of detailing products, some of which I haven't gotten yet <laughs> due to Cluel over here not sharing. Well, give it. wait till summer. You're not cleaning wheels <laughs> off. Anyway. That's true. Yes, they have wheel cleaner. They have a ceramic quick rinse. They also have their awesome two-step detailing compound where you have your cut and your buff. It's all a set-to-go ready to, out, of, out of the box. It's an easy-to-use system, right. and that's what makes it so awesome. These guys are local, kind of hands-on-the-ground. Well, not on the ground because that would be bad for yeah, you ever detailing. Drop, you ever drop a towel on the ground? I, like well, yeah. You just throw it then, away. I know. It's terrible. Yeah, well, just, I, I put it in the it. wash bin. You then you use it later after you wash it. Yes. Oh, no, there could be a rock stuck in the in the in the microfiber loops. You can't. It becomes a dish. You put rag. it in the washer and then you dry it. And no. 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 Okay. If it touches the ground. Well, Oberk does sell uh, new detailing cloths That's as true. well. That's true. So head over to oberkcarcare.com. They also sell all of their materials on detailedimage.com and carsupplieswarehouse.com. If you use the code OVERCREST at checkout, you'll get 20% off your order. All right. So have you thought about going to Lamar before? Oh, I would love to go to oh, Lamar. Oh, God, I would love to go. You know, I would love what's to go. cool about Lamar and uh, just from reading, it's like, a circus inside the track for yeah. the entire 24 hours. Yes. Because people don't sleep those 24 hours. Right. You go there, you're washing the entire race. There's like Ferris wheels. So do you just and basically like sleep for like a week ahead of time? And you sleep after. Like, well, for us, we just sleep on the plane ride home. <laughs> yeah, I suppose that's probably true. I would I would uh, have a lot of Red Bulls that day, I think. Would yes. be, would be. All right, so what have we got going on for next week? Next week, I have one of my interesting history stories and deep dive. Do you want to tease anything Into, about it to, uh, to like convince everyone that they... It's it's not so much a story as it is just a strange look at a topic or an industry yeah. that has to do with nuclear power. Speaking of like nuclear things, you remember when we interviewed the... The, the the foremost expert on the SR-71? I cannot I remember do. his name. And then we aired it on Patreon because it was, it was a little deep. Yes. Do you think we should release that episode? Ooh, we certainly could. I think we certainly could. I really want to, but I feel like <laughs> I feel like at the end of it, we got a little uh, 
what uh, crazy <laughs> like a little cons- see i don't like, remember i was like oh there was the like vibe. conspiracy theories and yeah, stuff it was like conspiracy oh. theories and i was like super into it and you i was know what like people, yes that's possible you know what people should do is just head over to our driver's club become a member and then, you can and just then listen they to it can right listen now. to it along with all of our other back catalog of exclusive content that's a good segue i was that's that was good yeah, very good like very good yeah, yeah. uh overcrest Productions.com slash drivers club. Yep, there's a link right there at the top of the website. Just go to Overcrest Productions and it is uh, basically access to our Patreon drivers club. So that is how you can basically hear Chris go down a really crazy rabbit hole. Really crazy rabbit hole. <laughs> almost, almost embarrassingly so. I'm like, wow, I sound like I'm nuts. It's like Alex Jones invaded my body. Oh, yeah, my was, goodness. It was, it was peek good. behind the curtain. All right, guys, we will see you next week. Take care.